Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, Here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everyone. We have a great guest today, Joe Goldberg, who is a U.S. He's been a CIA covert action officer, corporate intelligence director, international political consultant, and currently a college instructor and writer. And we're going to be learning about his writing right now. During 2014, Joe self-published the novel Secret Wars, an espionage story. Hey, that's what we're going to talk about. And his newest book, spy devil so if you're like that genre of books you're gonna like his books definitely go get a copy i highly recommend it before we get started make sure to share subscribe hit that like button you know we like it and let's get started let's welcome to the show joe goldberg welcome sir thank you very much glad to be here thanks for the invitation thank you very much for doing this you know i forgot to mention before the interview as well thank you for your service well thank i i supported the people who really worked hard you know the the military and the other ones that's that was my job but that's great yeah yeah cia um you can't get better spy books i think from unless you get an yeah. author who lived in the cia before we get started what, what, what motivated you to work for what do they call it the agency the agency yeah that's what that's what everybody called it um <laughs> i don't hear the pickle factory too often the company it's usually usually the agency uh, I was in, uh, I always knew I wanted to be in some sort of public service for a while. If it wasn't going to get elected and I wanted to do something else, I had a political science degree. I added my broadcasting and film degree in college at Iowa, go Hawks. And, uh, they came on campus. I couldn't think of for inter for interviews. I couldn't think of a better way to put that bifurcated interest in politics and, and video or television together as my theater instructor said to me when I was in class, he goes, he goes, what's your major? I go, politics and broadcasting. He stops and turns, he goes, you're the most dangerous person in this room. And little <laughs> did he know. So I, uh, uh, they came on campus. I interviewed, took a while, go through the process. Uh, and uh, they hired me for, uh, had, a, had a couple of different uh, opportunities. They, they shop your file, then they get responses saying, hey, come and talk to our people. So you go out there and talk to a lot of different offices in one day. And I got picked. It's hard to get into. So I was kind of honored to raise my hand and pledge allegiance to the Constitution. Absolutely. It is very difficult to get into. You have to be super sharp. How's the physical capacity? You know, I've never asked now that I think about it. Do they have physical training in the beginning of the of the academy or not really? No, well, I was not a case. I didn't go in as a case officer. I went in as an analyst mm. in video. I act, um, the case officers, of course, they have their, their program. I, I, after I, I went in as a video analyst, and I went into the propaganda ops and the director of operations. 
And that's when they made me a case officer, but I didn't have to take the entire course. I actually got to skip the physical activity stuff. Oh. <laughs> it was Ops Course Accelerated, they called it back then. I don't know what they call it now, but it was Ops Course Accelerated. And so I have to take all the fun stuff without having to freeze or anything like that. It was just fine. I didn't bungee down a, a helicopter or uh, one places, new places, but I, did, I got to skip that stuff. But, the, but there unique. are parts, of course. Yeah. That's kind of unique, too, because I haven't met... I don't think I've ever met anybody yet that's gone from an analyst to a case officer. I think I might have met an officer who went to an analyst. I think I can't remember. Yeah, it's, it, it actually was a not a common thing. Yeah, I can uh, imagine not. There was there was a, the course existed, and there was I had classmates of maybe a dozen in that class. You know, people who maybe come from the military that was very popular. That they they weren't going to go. They didn't need the crash and bang and those types of things. They just needed to know the tech, tools and techniques. So they were part of that class, or and the few others like me who were transitioning from intelligence, directorate of intelligence into operations, uh, but it was not common at least back then. I can imagine. I know there's always a, a little bit of a rivalry. <laughs> uh, there's a miss. It was a whole new world. The day, the day I walked, I left my intelligence job in in, in uh, media and an analysis, and I supported propaganda people which is why they knew of me and why they hired me a year later uh but they were speaking a language of which i knew not um <laughs> and doing things and so they had to train me up to understand the world and, you know afghanistan was on fire and that's took up a lot of time and, and president reagan said this thing called hey mr gorbachev tear down this wall that kind of changes your your schedule for the day and schedule for the couple months or a year <laughs> So you don't know what's going to happen. And in, in an intelligence, it had you got stuff. You know, you watch. I watched TV. I analyzed media, TV, but in operations, things were things were popping a whole different life. Now let's do that. Let's go ahead and start off with your intelligence experience, and then we'll go into as you were as a case officer. And then we'll head over to your books as well, because I know your books are, are based, we'll say loosely. Yeah. <laughs> Some of that work. Good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no redactions Office needed. Security. Office of Security. Thank you. <laughs> so when you were working in intelligence, again, as you mentioned, you had a very unique position. I never even I knew of it, but I haven't met anybody who's in, involved in it. I mean, I've spoken to, what's her name? Uh, Joanne Mendez, who did a oh. lot of the CIA work. and Yeah, that's OTS. Yeah. yeah. But what did you do as media analyst? What is this all about? Well, this this is the ancient history. This is 1980s, mid 1980. CNN was just on the air. Videotape. The lawsuits were just cited, VHS versus Beta, and oh, and, and the use of the use of images, live not still images. We had a whole photographic thing, but um, actual video as a intelligence source was totally uh, unknown oh. to most. You know, they got cables in. They read reports. The people wrote things. They, they, the, this, the station in, in at that time, say the station in South Africa, would send in stuff on apartheid, and say, "Here's what's happening." I could show them a video instantly of the news or whatever's happening, and send it to the, the South Africa desk and, and anybody else who's interested, and they could see what's on the what's on the ground. As a, when a when a coup would happen, like Marcos or Duvalier, or whatever, as I said, they didn't take over the library; they took over the TV station. All right, so the stuff that's what they needed, and that's what we could show the use of. I call it vident um, video intelligence, and and, oh, yeah. and Reagan uh, was a video guy. So although we don't make propaganda stuff for the White House, 
we supported those offices. We actually got a meritorious unit citation for, for our work. We were doing nonstop, getting all the video together for some of these events that went to NSC, went to the White House, because we could show it to them. And the president liked to see things. And that, that really helped. Um, closed circuit television system throughout the agency. I pushed for that so people could see um, news real time or news clips that we got legally um, of various things rather than just reading about things posted on the law if they did actually did that. So that was my, I was a zealot for the use of video, TV, whatever it might be for uh, intelligence gathering, intelligence use. Back before social media, back before it was, now it's like, of course, but I guarantee you, back in 85, nah. No matter what anybody says, uh-uh. It was, a, it was a long haul to cut through that sort of Ivy League, give me a piece of paper mentality. Oh, I don't even know if anybody, you know, you got to look up pencils and papers nowadays yeah. <laughs> to see what they were. Man, and yeah, you're talking 35 years ago. Cause Thanks a lot. <laughs> what? Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, 35 years ago, you're talking about maybe 15, 20 stations on TV? Oh, there was, I mean, we, there, I mean, cable television was there. CNN was live. CNN, you was know, they were there? broadcasting things from all over the world. And there was a CNN effect. People didn't want to get caught with their pants oh. down because CNN would show the badness of what was happening. And people would say, no, no, I don't, don't show me, which is why the Chinese tried to shut them down for Tiananmen Square. And CNN said, no way. Then that flipped and it became, oh, look, I can get worldwide publicity if i get on cnn and the, and the global network the global television stations come on in so that lost its impact but early on they were the news people on the ground mostly i mean there were others but they were the first sort of 24-hour news and they covered they went to places that you couldn't get to their news people and they were not that you don't use this you obviously can't use a reporter as an intelligence person but you can use the the video that they put on the air and show it to the people who might be interested. They take a video of, of Gaddafi at the time. Well, the biographic people are interested in seeing that. All right. They want to see how he's moving, what he's wearing, how he's talking. Whereas, you know, the security people want to see how his security forces are, are, are walking around. The Libya desk wants to see because it's the Libya thing. I mean, there's a whole series of people get to see in re, you know, basically real time the person that they're interested in, rather than just still images and uh, secondary conversations i can show it to him you know it's interesting i have a question but before i ask you the question it reminds me of my dad uh, my family's from cuba and um that was the first thing he castro started taking over was the news stations and of course and i think the first six months he said that they would show i think it was like once a day in the news they would show the executions of anybody who went against the government at the time and that's what they would televise it was well let me say that was, i'm sorry did oh, you, now, that was actually the worst part of that job and kind of why I left oh, wow. uh, because there was a lot of stuff going on, especially the terrorism hostages in Lebanon and Beirut. People don't remember these things, people who were being tortured and killed. And we got the videos or they were being shown things. It just became really hard <laughs> to see these things endlessly. Um, and basically we rewind, uh, and it's just and, and it's what I did all the time. It's not, it's not as if it's a, here comes this day. You, you get this materials in. You see the atrocities in Afga atrocities in Afghanistan. Uh, you get it gets it gets tiring. It gets it weighs on you. Plus, my eyes were burnt out from watching TV. But it was that was hard. That was the hard part of that job. Not everything's you know roses. This is a mean world. 
and it reminds me. I just interviewed this morning Lieutenant Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Wayne Phelps, and he wrote a book on uh, drones. But in one of his chapters, he talked about cleaners, the ones that work on Facebook and look at all the stuff that shouldn't be on there. Yeah, and it's, you know, it caused some PTSD for some of these individuals because of all the stuff they saw. So I don't blame you whatsoever. Yeah, the people who, yeah, that's right. They, uh, it is a tough. Some of that stuff is tough. Yeah. Uh, William Buckley was taken, and uh, that's you know, right. It was just, you know, it just became maybe I, I don't know if I think I'm mentally weak, but after a while, it's become wasn't the only reason I left, but that was on the list of things. I was just tired of watching the bad stuff. I wanted to do something about it. Uh, absolutely. I guess my question I was going to ask you earlier, it was something novel for you folks looking at everything, like you mentioned, seeing Gaddafi, looking at his security team operated. I'm assuming for them, you also saw naivete because they weren't really uh, familiar with people being videotaped. So they might have blown it and oh. not acted in certain ways. And hey, take that off the camera. Hey, don't do that. That's leaking information. Did you see that a lot too? Oh, it was great. It was um, now they were they were getting some were wise smarter than others, but they would the ego here. Look at me, I'm on TV. They would say and do things. They'll hey, El Jefe, you know, use this. You know, here's a camera. Get your do a do a video. Um, that became that was a nice that was a, a gift. Uh, but you know, people get savvy really fast, and they and once once they know that we're paying more attention to that, and I was just doing mostly open source. I wasn't really. Oh. Getting as much because uh, people were, weren't we weren't taking video as intelligence too much at the time, and not that, not that I'm aware of. But I was just doing totally open source videos from around, from other places, and I didn't speak all the languages, but I could see the videos, and a lot of it was in English. It was it was handy. It was. Don't worry, I want to ask you about the Zapruder film either. So well, not me, <laughs> not me. It's, we I, I actually had the film vault underneath my. Uh, control, but I didn't go that deep into the film ball. <laughs> so you went to that world, then you shifted out of there, and you were kind of more a proactive <laughs> in the world as a case officer, weren't you? Yeah, I well, I just wanted to be, uh, I wanted to do something about it. And since my background experience was in propaganda operation, was in media, TV, writing, visuals, the propaganda operations guys took notice i kind of mem easily memorized things they would say hey we need something to something that looks like this for this video we're making do you know and i'd say yeah i kind of remember something like that and they go "Ooh!" so i was honored that they took notice and brought me over in actually in a hiring freeze and uh i went to work in the back then it was the television branch and uh ended up running our television or, was not the on-site manager, but helped run our television facility to make TV, you know, operate propaganda, which is you know, we do all the time. Um, you know, targeted to the directives of what the president has 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 determined, which was basically the Soviets and terrorism and drugs, and you can imagine what they might be, and it caused those guys as much pain as I possibly could using using video. That's really amazing because it's been going on for decades, even before you, right? I mean, you had the Tokyo Rose doing it over the radio. You had oh, propaganda has been around since the Romans. I mean, and before that, I mean, you just <laughs> know it has. I mean, it's it's a uh, I teach mass intro to mass com and propaganda is part of it, and they they usually you know goes back to the, the beginning of time, and then they saw it how the the Nazis perfected it in World War Two, but you know, getting people to get your message out and maybe influence the way they're going to act and think 
is as old as there's ever been. And of course we're doing it. And of course we're using whatever means possible. Now it's social media. I would have been, I would have loved having social media back then rather than to use stone knives and bearskins trying to get our to get this stuff out there to hopefully the people I want to see it see it. Uh, you know, it was it was a lot more process involved. Now you want to do something, post it viral, no one knows. They can influence an election. It's, you know, it's it's just you know push a button. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I and and I, I have a. I don't know if it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm an egotistical maniac as it is, but I, we, you know, 35 years ago, we're in the early 90s, when this was going on, we were doing this, or late 80s, you know, sort of the beginning of that. They, they were doing propaganda in the agency from the beginning, but we, we I was there for the shift from analog to digital. So uh, oh, wow. how, how, do you, how do you make the, the, the analog to digital shift as effective and lay the groundwork for what's important and what's not important? Now I'm a dinosaur. That's a long time ago. There's been a lot of smart people between then and now, but we had to figure that out and, and, and make it happen. Any stories, not of what you did, <laughs> but any stories that you saw somebody else do that either, why are you even trying to do that? Because it's ridiculous or wow, that's really crafty that you saw another country doing in regards to psyops? Oh, I've never actually been asked that question. Uh, well, the Russians, the Russians were good. The Soviets were good. Um, oh. You know, we had a helicopter, they had a helicopter. We had TV, they had TV. We, I mean, it's not as if we had different tools. It was just the fact they were very effective and that they still are in, uh, as, as Russians, as I mean, the Soviets, um, in the process and getting things out. And I was, and we all used, you know, we didn't do it. They did it. It's in this TV station or this newspaper put that out. Not us. We didn't write that. We didn't produce <laughs> that. We didn't send it. But they were very good. They had a better network, I think, for a while of, of influence. And the Western media was stronger and bigger. They, and they wanted to fill up time. So I guess it was, might have been easier for them to fill up the open, free democracy Western media than it be for us to get something behind the Iron Curtain or whatever, which was crumbling. I was there for that, too. That was another... You know, the whole Berlin Wall thing was was yeah, a lot true. of a lot of and that and what happened that was on TV, all right. Yeah. I, was, I was I was actually at a dinner with a guy who was a professor who was an Eastern European professor, and he was saying to me, "Oh, Gorbachev will never tear down the wall. This you know, it's a direct line <laughs> to Moscow." I go home and there's Tom Brokaw talking about the wall coming down that night. I'm like, this guy bad source. Um, what do professors know? Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> that's why I am one. <laughs> But I, I think that, you know some places. Some places were better than others. I didn't really run into the Chinese. There, there were a, there were a lot of different um, things coming online, uh, like movie directors and producers and writers. They were very, very uh, popular around the world. So they may have been better, or we were as maybe influencing or using those particular tools and techniques behind the scenes. I don't know. They were. We we're all fighting it out. So, folks, again, joegoldbergbooks.com is his website. You can check it out. We're going to be talking about his two books in a second here, right now. Um, but before we get to that, it's interesting, um, Joe, because I know we've had some interesting people. When I look at history, and I, and I look at history in regards to the, to the world of espionage, it's it's interesting to see who's played along. I mean, I've seen John Wayne, I've seen Walt Disney. Yeah, a lot of these individuals play along. Did I'm assuming Hollywood must have been playing along somewhere along the line too with you guys or no? no? They, 
Well, they've been playing along since the beginning of, of movies. I mean, World War II, Why We Fight series by Frank Capra, and uh, the right. five the five, the the movie uh, directors who went through Normandy. There's actually a very good documentary on this. I think on Netflix or Amazon, one of the two, about the five who came back. I and mean, there's John Ford and that crowd who filmed the invasions, filmed the war. We wouldn't see it. So Hollywood and the government, and there was no CIA back then, but have had a had a long history. Why We Fight was a propaganda series by Frank Capra. And of course, I mean, if you if you saw Argo, right? Argo was yeah. a, we used the makeup people in Argo. Yeah, and yeah, okay, of course. We use the resources at the disposal, do what it ever can legally be done to get the message of our of the president of the United States out. That's the job. Don't forget Rocky IV in Russia. Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> quality, quality. Rocky IV, the fave. <laughs> Let's go ahead and go to your first book, Secret Wars, an espionage story. Tell us a little bit about this one. Well, that's sort of the story of my life in propaganda ops. Oh, sorry. Any any resemblance anyone living or dead is purely coincidental <laughs> and a figment of the author's imagination. Let me say that. But it is about it's a historical fiction novel set in '86 around Gaddafi, around Libya, around. Um, uh, what do you do to sort of disrupt a regime which is not good and the means and it's basically propaganda operations so the various and there's hollywood in there. there's a makeup artist in there um and what it what it takes to potentially if it was it's fiction but what what it takes to make people believe something which they may not normally believe until they see it and what are the impacts of that on the people and not the, the people who are the receivers, but also the people who are the creators. I dedicated that book to my wife and kids, and I also dedicated it to the patriots. And I said, you know who you are, because there's a lot of people out there right this very second, and for all these decades, who are doing the hard thing, because they can. And they don't need stock options, and they don't get this raises. They're, they're doing it. And I wanted, I knew those people, and I wanted to do something that supported or at least showed how who they are kind of what they're working on what the the hard things they do and with no pat on the back and that is what secret wars is, is underlying theme of it and with the real issues of Qaddafi terrorism i actually i actually wrote that book between 1999 and 2001 it was oh, wow. actually in the brown envelopes and the various reasons I didn't do it for, for three or four years. And I got back on track for personal reasons and had it out. Um, but for 2001, the week of 9-11. And back then there wasn't internet. There wasn't, you know, email. You actually had to write cover letters and put the books inside these big brown envelopes and send them to people and hope they send something back. And so 9-11 happens and I open up all, you know, the stack of stuff I want to send in hopes of getting something back. Tear them open. I rewrite my cover letter um if not terrorism not if not now when because the book was about the beginning of terrorism uh state sponsored thing like that and i got some response saying hey nice book but no one's gonna want to read about terrorism we were all spooked well obviously it was absolutely wrong all right because brad thor and the rest uh hit a market and i sat on it um until 2014. Oh, man. Yep. oh really shame on me yep 
Shoot. Shame I know. Shame on me. Looking back. Okay, Mom, that's enough. I've heard it. <laughs> Again, folks, you can catch the book. It's a great, it's a great read. Secret Wars an Espionage Story. Um, it's about I'm a, actually I'm actually uh, reissuing that. I have a second edition coming out, hopefully another this year. Uh, oh, just, cool. just to bring it. I, I sat on it and since I might be bringing some characters out in my next books, um, that was people were asking, could you reissue Secret Wars? And so I'm working on that right now. I'll give you a little bit of an excerpt, folks. It's uh, when it when terrorists funded by the Libyan government strike airports in Rome and Vienna in 1985, the CIA enlists top propaganda expert Mike Garnett. Garnett, you got his name right. He has similar characteristics to somebody we know, folks, to help recruit yeah, a high was- <laughs> to help yeah. recruit a high-ranking Libyan official, Foreign Minister Abdallah Mukhtar, to work yeah. for the CIA. Is that what it's about? Yeah. <laughs> Mike Garnett was actually a throwaway alias I used a long time ago. So oh, really? So it's definitely a, a must-read. It's really a fun book, and, and a really, it's, again, it's, it's a different type of world if you like this espionage world because you have different genres with different uh, periods of it, right? You have the periods yeah. in the nineteen forties, sixties, and you see so many different things. Well, I wrote this as historical fiction, although back then it was not quite as historical. Now it's ancient history. And as I was writing the sequel, I was pretty much told. I was a number one Amazon bestseller for quite a while. And I was like, I'm going to read the, write the sequel. What happens next to these people? And I was kind of told, and, and you want the validation through the agents. I, I did it on my own. And so I um, started writing this, this historical fiction sequel. And I was told, don't do it. People want to see, you know, nowadays, bang, bang, action thrillers. You know, that's what agents want. So don't do that. Write a bang, bang, current event action thriller. So I stopped. I took the advice of other authors in the, genre, in the field, in the genre, and I stopped. And it took me a while to figure out, because I'd already written like a third to a half of a sequel, um, which I should have just finished, but hindsight's easy. And so it took me a while to figure out what to do for Spy Devils. And, uh, but now I look back, I think I'm actually a better historical fiction writer as an author. So that's just my own personal opinion and style. I like historical fiction. Now we're going to go into Spy Devils, folks, is the other book as well. Tell us a little bit about Spy Devils. Spy Devils. Spy Devils is more based on my second career after the agency, which is where I went to work in corporate intelligence. I went to Motorola, which was the company that sort of that started a, a professional corporate intelligence function inside their strategy groups to, okay. uh, to find information on their competitors, the market, government, regulations, whatever it might be. Uh, Bob Galvin was on President Nixon's PIFI president of advisory board, he brought in a professional CIA officer to start this unit in the early 80s. And it was the benchmark and first, and some say the best at the times, um, corporate intelligence function. We were we an intelligence function throughout the company, although it was centralized in corporate. And everybody ever ran that group corporate office was a was a CIA officer, formerly. I was the last one when Motorola went through its uh, structural changes and the office no longer existed. But there's a lot of things that you do, <laughs> not, in, not espionage. No one is, if anybody's doing espionage at the corporate level, I just read some more books about that. That's a whole different. My gang, the people who I honor in the corporate intelligence world would never do that. If they make a big mistake, they're violating the ethics and they get in trouble. And that happens. But the stuff you read about, oh, they're, they're using... There are companies, private intelligence companies, doing things 
it's helping companies out. But people who are doing what I did, there's still tons of them. They are thinkers, analysts, collectors, data miners, and they are able to communicate that to their end users to make to help them make informed decisions. So that was sort of my 16-year career at Motorola. And once I'm a dinosaur on that one too, because I had my own beliefs and ways to do it. So for spy devils, like how can I how can I write a corporate intelligence book, a corporate espionage? I don't want to call it corporate espionage, corporate intelligence. Not there's no espionage in corporate. If there isn't, they should go to jail. Um, and I got done with it, and I looked at it, and I go, you know what? A book about corporate intelligence is boring. Uh, unless you want to write about <laughs> filling out Excel spreadsheets and being on the phone for a long time and scrubbing the internet and having lots of meetings. Uh, and I was trying to write it in that early John Le Carre sort of uh, <laughs> process, you know, thought, thoughtful issue. It just didn't, that's not what the market wants. Editors and, and readers of my, who read the drafts were like, uh-uh. So I had to put in some action venture. I know a few people, I know a few things, I've done a few things. So I took some personal experiences, took some other things. Uh, the book opens with a, the forward is written by the main character. The, uh, and he said, and talking about me convincing them to give me their stories to write about, you can believe it or not, but it's that story. It's a, it's a story of these, of these, uh, I wouldn't call them a mission impossible group. It's sort of that way, eclectic group of people who are only there to do this hard thing. And they do have a little bit of sense of humor. That seems the biggest thing I'm getting from this book besides that's a good story and it's not stuff like that is the carrot it's funny in some senses they there is a lot of sarcasm a lot of banter and the characters are there's that it's not just tense boom boom it's interesting because i know you change you have a new character in this one uh trial bridge bridger Trowbridge. hall Trowbridge. Bridger. yep yeah so that's a whole different that's a different character now in your third book coming up are you going back to Garnett? Or are you going back to Hall? Or got a no? I'm there? gonna um, no. It's gonna be Spy Devils Two. Uh, oh. cur current title is Rebellious Son, which he's the devil, and the uh, devil was a rebellious son. It just so happens that his boss is a person who trained him. Actually, she birthed him to be a spy. His mother is a is a senior CIA uh, director of operations person who had a son specifically to someday be outside the uh, the intelligence sphere loose and free yeah she directs his operations most of the time but he's never even been in the building that's that's gonna come up in book two but it's his mother and the 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 familial problems that can happen when you're when you're working for your mom <laughs> with the top legendary spy and what you are and so there's sort of that mother you know, son feeling every time she calls, she goes, is this a, is this a good time to talk? And he would go, would it make a difference? And she goes, no, you know, that, that type of stuff. And people have, have gravitated towards that. And the, the family topic was actually a theme in the first drafts They actually went 300,000 words to get this book done. But in the first drafts, the family theme was much stronger. It's still in there. My parents died during this process. And I was kind of like, I want to do something like that. The book's dedicated to them. So I was trying to do this. There's a, there's a daughter-father thing in there. There's some other relationship, relationships that are um, 
quasi-familial, although they may not be related. So, but you're, to answer your question, oh, by the way, just one more thing on spy devils. If you're from Iowa, you're going to recognize every name because almost every name is University of Iowa campus or building or street. Trowbridge Hall, <laughs> the building, all right? So his name is Bridger, all right? So Stanley Hall, on and on it goes. So the, the Iowa people are loving it. It's like a lot of Easter eggs for Iowa people. I, I hate making names. I'm not just steal them from Iowa. Um, book two, I'm actually, as of right now, as I'm working on it, bringing back characters from Secret Wars. You don't need to have read Secret Wars to have read Rebellious Son. Like, it's not, because I can work around that easily in a paragraph. But keeping with the theme, I actually haven't told many people this, so if anybody's listening, I'm trying, I, I want to go back to the basics, like it's with dead drops and old style espionage. Oh, yeah. And so I'm using Bridger's mother is old, all right? Uh, the people who are in Secret Wars are now old. And I have an old terrorist from Secret Wars. I have an old case officer who was actually based, you know, he was based on Dewey Claridge's former counterterrorism guy. What do old spies and old terrorists do? They're at the end of their game, all right? They should be retired, but they got that one last swing to, to do that thing that they never got done or that one last thing to put them on the map or they'll cement their legacy. And so that is sort of a driving story and how the spy devils interact with that. Um, Fascinating. What, I can't happens wait. Them, what happens to an old spy and an old terrorist? That's kind of the theme. <laughs> it's interesting. Because it sounds, I don't know why, this is an older movie. I'm not sure if you ever saw it, but it has a little bit of flashes of sneakers. Sneakers, Robert, yeah. Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier. There's a little bit of humor and stuff like that. Yeah. It's not it quite that. But it's, uh, yeah, there's a couple other things I that I people bring up. But overall, I just, I didn't want to be Mission Impossible. I liked uh, humor, some actually some war movies. I kind of, threw, I, I kept things in my head. Almost like spyish? What was that? I spy. I spy -ish? Well, I gotcha. I guess it could be I spyish. The man from Uncle-ish. Um, which was the story. Those are the TV shows I watched growing up, right? The spy yeah. shows. Um, I like those a lot. Yeah, and uh, Napoleon Solo, of course. But, <laughs> so that so there is there is that element. I didn't try to copy anything. Next, uh, but we, you take elements of the things that you that made you right, and so you take your own experiences and things that you watched and read, and you say, okay, I like that. I like that feel. So I didn't want to. I wanted to write more of an espionage or process thought book than a boom boom book, and I ended up with a sort of a funny one guy. One reviewer actually called it a whimsical espionage thriller. I'm not sure I'm whimsical, but uh, yeah, there's there's humor in it, and there's sarcasm, and there's a, there's banter, and it really goes back to the essence of the jobs I was doing in the agency. That stuff is hard. There are some dark times. You you are by yourself in many cases, and it's a mental um, struggle. Or you have to put your you have to keep your mind focused on what you're doing. It's, you're 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 in charge of this project. You may be working with a team, but it's your and you you got to stay focused. And when you're watching lots of video of people dying and kids who got blown up, it's hard. And the and it, so I would say if it's gonna be like anything, it's like mash. It they use dark humor to get through those tough, insane, although not the age of insane, those tough moments. And I would say if there's a feel 
there's a feel more like mash than there is of anything else. Fascinating. You mentioned that. And I know my last question here is we're going to wrap up. Um, I have a podcast on special forces mm -hmm. and I do one on Love the homicide that. detectives too. And the similarities between both as I learned, because a lot of times with the podcast is for me to learn as, as I grow, you know, as I grow as a human being, as a, as I teach a psychology. So I like to be able to learn more and humor is one of the, their coping mechanisms for yeah. the horrors that they see in the world. Cause nobody sees that. I always tell people criminal minds, that stuff is Disneyland compared to what these guys were telling me, what they saw. I don't think the normal, the public could handle it. They're exactly correct. You're exactly, that is humor was our way through. A lot of people did alcohol. A lot of people, you know, mm. had their marriages break up. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, it's a tough, and, and, and there's a lot of goodness. This is, I'm not trying to make it sound like we're walking through the gates of hell all the time. But when you're in there and you're doing these th the hard thing, it can weigh on your mind. And humor was our way out of it, my group of people around. And I guess I, and even when I was in corporate, when you're trying to meet that deadline and you're trying to find the impossible thing for a CEO who needs to have this thing and how you're supposed to get it, you know, the, the right ways, you know, humor in our, you know, plays a role. So I, I didn't even think about that overall until later on. But I guess that became that, that's the underlying theme, and I and I know a lot enough special forces people. There's a lot of authors now who are there. I respect them. I work hard to keep them alive. Um, they they talk about the same thing. You know, that gallows. And you see it all the time. The gallows humor, the the, the joking back and forth. And that's what we did inside our own little non-lethal world. For me, you know, it's interesting. Um, I guess my one of my last questions off the books for a second, but yep. kind of, and you get off your experience as well. I want to get your opinion. I've been speaking to a lot of individuals over the last few weeks. I've heard some, I don't know what you could say, rumors or something that, you know, some work of, in the espionage world has gone back to more traditional methods like dead drops because of the vulnerability factor of the internet and um, the vulnerability factor of social media. And I was talking to a couple individuals who work in that area and they're really concerned because they say it seems like social media is out of our control. Now we, we can't seem to be able to rein it in. It's gone too crazy with the psyops going on with China and Russia and whoever, and it's right. really going crazy. And uh, even the social media giants themselves can't seem to control it. What's your take on that? Well, I teach social media as my class. Social media as news. Um, it's a huge topic. It's a whole nother. It's a whole nother, uh, Can you do it in one, one minute or? No. <laughs> I do it in one minute. In one minute. Um, I'm just kidding. So social, me social media is, uh, uh, whether it was ever under control is another story, but it is, mm. it is pervasive in our lives, in our, in our soul, and now it's in our psyche. We have, you know, we have, uh, drug sort of responses if you don't have our phone with you if i leave my wallet at home fine i'm leaving my phone at home i'm turning around you know it's it is it is a fabric it, it is for good and for evil and uh, misinformation um i teach a class on misinformation too is um is uncontrolled and because one person's misinformation is another person's fact so how can you say, aha, you know, you're, you're, you're getting rid of my facts. You're censoring me. Well, that's not a fact, but yeah, it is a fact because it confirms everything I believe. So I searched my <laughs> bias, my bias came up and it was on the, the third page and I believe it now. So therefore it must be true. You can't, you can't control the humans. I use this in, in spy devils and everybody says it because it's just true. The vulnerability in the system is the human being. 
And if the human is going to is inclined to want to believe certain things, get inside their filter bubble, which AI is doing for us, Netflix is doing for us, and Amazon do, has done for us. They know everything about us now, and they're we're only going to see what we need to see. And then we end up in our echo chamber. Therefore, we're only saying things to each other. It says the exact same thing. We are in a tr we are in trouble. It's very difficult to get out of your bubbles and your filters. So if you're trying to be propaganda, that's a that you know very hard. But you can use there are means in social media and in digital ways to get to people to target uh, those individuals with your messages. But when it comes down to the grand human space, forget it. When it comes down to espionage techniques. That's actually was one why the first thing I said in my book was old school, because I believed, and it seems to be come out that you have to ratchet, you have to get off the network, you have to uh, get you know get unplug because if you're connected, you're in trouble. So actually, the one of the main things in my little book, that was sort of this uh, Alfred Hitchcock MacGuffin, is offline. Nobody knows exactly what it is, and they're trying to find it. That's kind of like this fake driving force, but they're offline, and that's what. There's, you know, dead drops and not even digital drug drops where you put a, you stamp something in the ground that puts out a signal and you can walk by and your phone will pick up the, 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 the message or whatever. And we're talking about harming out the middle of a, of a log and sitting it up and throwing it in the woods, you know, old style stuff. Cause you got to get off. If it's digital, it can be intercepted and encrypted. Well, you know, there's a lot of good encryption too. Obviously I'm speaking generically, but That's I think old bad. school off the, off the web is popular now yeah i think you're absolutely right it, it, like i said I, I, that's what i got an unconformed source uh, anonymous <laughs> but i've no, been I mean, hearing just, a lot more it makes sense <laughs> if you can't do something through digital the safest way to do it is through analog is to, is to talk to people all right then yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's still predominantly and abundantly through the digital technology means which is great that's but, I, was, I was talking to a professor yesterday talk about chinese espionage and it was interesting because the prior administration had mentioned this just re about a month ago, um, and it was an it didn't take a lot of didn't get a lot of traction, but it was an interesting comment. He said that we needed to. He's not sure if we, we need to or not, but he needs at least we need to think about the idea of taking off some of our most sensitive areas, facilities. Uh, nuclear, whatever it may be, um, and maybe go down a notch or two in technology <laughs> because well, we can't seem to control the cyber hackers. And uh, I thought that was interesting. It's like actually go backwards to protect yourself, like you just said with the dead drop. <laughs> well, that's but actually, actually, spy devils. The, it is Chinese espionage, and it is the fact that they took their system offline so the Chinese couldn't see it. That's, that's specifically stated in the book, and about the Chinese trying to get this Look technology. They took this whole uh, area of their business offline so they could not get have it stolen. And then it becomes, well, what the hell is it? And then it, and then the fun begins and all this other sort of stuff. But the book is corporate and corporate espionage, corporate intelligence, and Chinese espionage is the key theme behind it. So there you go, folks. You got a futurist. He sees the future already, so you definitely want to get these books. Yeah. <laughs> they were in my group at Motorola, too, the futurist for a while. So those well, are great guys. Go. Great people. Yeah, they're a lot of fun to hang out. <laughs> yeah, they are actually. It's weird. Two, two books to recommend for you: Secret Wars and Espionage Story, and Spy Devils. The author is Joe Goldberg, and you can find JoeGoldbergBooks.com if you want to learn more about him and what he's up to, what the next books may be coming out. 
And uh, Joe, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Uh, my pleasure. It was really enjoyable. Great questions. And uh, well, anything you. to help you in the future, let me know. Absolutely. Well, I'm kind of afraid of you, but absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you never know with him, you know, who knows what I'm going to be. But thank you so much again for taking the time. Everybody, make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know, we like it. Get those five stars in if you're on Apple. Have a good one, everybody. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.